All right, if you have your Bibles, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Last time we went down as far as verse 25, beginning to look at the creation account here, how in the beginning God, self-existent, uh, created at some point uh, in time and eternity, created the heavens and the earth, and then we began to look at the account, how God spoke into existence, let there be light, and the light came to being, separated the light from the darkness, and we began to look then at the successive first few days of creation as God was creating the water and the land masses and God creating the plant life and then, of course, the animals, the winged animals and the animals in the sea and then the animals, of course, the cattle and so forth. And we began to look at the account of creation tonight as we pick back up here in verse 26. Again, we're still in the midst of this creation account. We find ourselves now on the sixth day of God's creation. And tonight we specifically come into an interesting spot where we now begin to look at the creation of man uh, himself. And of course the, the crowning aspect of God's creation, the creation of man. And as we look at the end of chapter 1 and we'll go into part of chapter 2 tonight as well, we'll begin to see some of these uh, aspects of God's most marvelous creation. Not that it's all not wonderful, but certainly the crowning aspect of God's creation is that he would create you and I for fellowship with himself, something unique, something separate from all the other created aspects that exist in his creation, different and distinct from any other creature, uh, God creating us. Interesting notice in verse 26 as we pick back up now in this creation account, God seeing each thing he made was good. We now read in verse 26, and then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, and there's our word there, bara in the Hebrew, again that word we talked about last time, uh, to create something out of nothing, and we described how that's a capacity distinct to God alone. We see a couple Hebrew words. This one, bara, means to create something from nothing. Asah is another word we see where it says God made, and that term literally means to assemble from existing parts. Remember, God, uh, it tells us, made the plants and so forth, and he assembled the idea. Asah was the Hebrew word there where God assembled out of the existing elements that were already there. He formulated the amazing different aspects of plant life. There were some things created, bara, that God spoke out of nothing into existence. Other aspects of his creation, he was taking then what was there, the existing elements and matter and forming other things. It's interesting that we find regarding man, as we'll go into chapter 2 and then sort of again the, the, the telescopic view becomes sort of a microscopic view and we have a, a further detailed record of God's creation of man, we'll see that man was both created and made, that God uh, did both with us, which is quite an interesting thing. But take note of a few things in verse 26 and 27. First of all, notice verse 26, then God said, let us, let us, it says, make man in our image, plural terms, according to our Likeness, And then when you look into verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Notice here you have the 
joining together of plural pronouns as well as with singular pronouns in both of these verses describing God's creation. And of course the uh, indication here again, more allusions to the Trinity, to the fact of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That one God existing in three persons. And here no doubt you have uh, communication among the Trinity taking place, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, there are some who try and say, well, that's God uh, having communication with the angelic realm and he's speaking among the angels. Well, uh, that's totally foolish because the Bible doesn't teach that we are created in the image of angels. In fact, it tells us later on the Psalms as a result of the fall that we're made a little lower than the angels. So we're not created in the image of angels. So this isn't God communicating with angels because if we're not created in their image, why would God say, let us make man in our image and in our likeness? We are distinctly, unlike any other aspect of God's creation, the crowning gem on his creation, and that is as human beings, that God created us in his own image and in his own likeness. And of course you have your conversation taking place among the Father, among the Son and the Spirit, speaking of how God would create us in his image. And that is a very interesting thing to consider. What does that all entail? Uh, well, for one thing, Thessalonians tells us uh, that Paul prayed that they would be sanctified in body, soul, and spirit. And one way in which we are created in God's image and in God's likeness is that we know that God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in a sense, the way God's designed us, we are an inferior trinity, if you could use that term accurately, in that we are a tripart being. We are body, soul, and spirit. That is, we have a physical body, that's this tent or Pepsi can or milk jug, whatever it is, the physical aspect of us that contains who we really are, that allows us to express ourselves on this earth, to be able to embrace people and to be able to articulate words and to touch things and to smell things and to see things. We have this physical aspect of our body, which the scriptures call a tent, and a tent is a temporary dwelling place. You don't live in a tent forever. Paul says that, that this outward tent, it's, it's wearing away, and we groan in this tent, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. And we have a earthly body right now, as we'll see later on. It says, created chapter 2, verse 7, of the dust of the earth. Paul says that this in 1 Corinthians 15, that this present body is earthly, and then we have a spiritual body, an eternal body, that we'll receive, that will be uh, compatible for the eternal realm. This body, made of the, the existence to function in this realm. So we have a physical part of us, our body, that's one part. And then we have a soul, which makes us unique as human beings. Our soul would be our consciousness, uh, our emotional capacity, our mind, uh, the soulish aspect of us. And then the other unique thing that we have is that we are also spirit, that we are eternal beings. Uh, that is that when this physical body, this tent wears out and its purpose is no longer functional, the Bible tells us at that moment of death that our spirit is separated from this body, but there's the spiritual part of us which lasts forever. Remember when Jesus died, it says that he dismissed his spirit. Uh, and, and that is indeed the, the reality and the culmination of death, that when the spirit, the eternal part of you, which will dwell and live on forever and ever and ever, whether in hell and eternal torment or in heaven and eternal life with God forever, that spiritual part of us is what enables us to have fellowship and relationship with God. 
And that spirit is either dead in trespasses and sins, or that spirit has been made alive by coming to Jesus Christ. And when we're born again, the spiritual part of us comes alive. But God in his creation of us created us in his image and his likeness. We are a tripart being or an, an inferior trinity. In other ways, God has created us in his image, certainly, is that we're self-determinant beings. That is, we have volition. God's created us with free will. We have the capacity to choose. We're self-determinant beings. We can make decisions about things. Uh, God has created us in that way whereby we have certain feelings and we're able to experience certain things. Again, we talk about anthropomorphisms, which is basically a fancy term that describes how on occasion the Bible will define God in terms that we can relate to. So it'll talk about the eyes of the Lord uh, and the ear of the Lord and, and the arm of the Lord. Now, again, does God have a physical frame like we do? I, I don't know, but it indicates that there are certain things, again, that God can be angry, that God can be grieved. Again, the idea God's created us with these similar capacities as human beings. And again, no doubt, considering the fact that one day God was going to come to this earth, in a body, in the image and the likeness of man whom he was creating, and no doubt knowing in advance that Jesus would come in that form. So here we see God creating man, and notice for the purpose to rule over his creation. It says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over all the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man... In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Notice the Holy Spirit emphasizes right from the beginning, male and female. Two completely different Hebrew words. Male and female, he created them. Now we'll get more description of God's creation of Adam and then God's creation of Eve and how it took place as we get into chapter 2. But right away in the original account of God's creation, it tells us that by design God created gender distinctions. And it's almost as if right away the Holy Spirit wants to point out to us in the purity of the account of God's creation that by design, God created gender distinctions. In the beginning, God created. Here we have this account. God said, let's make man in our image, in our likeness. And then it says, and God created them, and he created them specifically male and female. Two designs. Biologically different. God created us in emotionally different, just the different capacities, the different idiosyncrasies that a man is intended to be a man and to function like a man and a woman is intended to be a woman and function like a woman. The tragedy is that today we want to put away the lines that exist for gender distinctions. And somehow, over the issues of complaining about equality and all these other kind of things, we're trying to blur lines and trying to say, no, there are not supposed to be distinctions. And the reality is, is all we are doing is creating a confusing mess that contradicts everything that the designer intended from the beginning when he purposely created us to be female and to be male. And that was God's intention and God's design. And he purposely created men with different chemicals in their bodies that make them act and conduct themselves in different ways than females and vice versa. 
And whether it's the biological makeup or the emotional makeup, all these things, they were by design. So listen, don't try and blur the lines. Let males be males and let's raise males like males and let females be females and let's raise them like females and teach them you should be a male and you should be a female. That's God's design. It's evident in the physical makeup. Again, and God's going to say, let a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The man and his wife were naked and unashamed. Again, even biologically, and I don't mean this in any way to you know, seem uh, you know, uh, facetious or inappropriate, but the biological plumbing of a man and a woman sexually indicates God had a difference. There's distinctions. The plumbing does not match for a male and a male. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's evident. It's obvious when you look at the things and the way God created them. And we're doing a tremendous disservice to our culture by trying to teach them that those lines should somehow be blurred and there shouldn't be distinctions and, and, and it's okay. You know, no, God created us the way he created us for a purpose and a reason and we should embrace that. We should celebrate gender distinctions. They're by design. They're wonderful as part of God's perfect plan. And, and God, knowing that the creation would need both of them, intended them to be from the very beginning. So here we see God creating them, both male and female, both in his image, both in his likeness. And then God blessed them, verse 28, and God said to them, here's God's first command in relation to mankind, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So God's first command in relation to love, in relation to procreation, in creation to coming together as a man and a woman to be able to do what? Procreate, to multiply, it says, to be fruitful, to fill the earth and to subdue it and have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's first command in relation to procreation, in relation to that we are to have a, a rulership, to have dominion over the earth, to subdue it, all the animal creation, all the plant creation, everything exists, that God has made us stewards as human beings. We're unique the way God's made us, and God has given to us a capacity and a purpose to have stewardship over the earth. Now, tragically, we're not really doing the best job in regards to our stewardship over God's creation, but it's God's intention and design that we be in the uppermost place whereby as human beings we subdue and rule and have dominion over the earth and use it as good stewards of God's creation. Now, as we'll see when we get to chapter 3, unfortunately, we forfeited that right over to the devil when we chose to obey him rather than to obey God. But nonetheless, that was our original intention, to be stewards of this earth. That's why I think it is important that we do things like research and development, that we do things like, like science and technology, because that, that was technically what we were intended to do from the beginning, to be stewards, to learn how to use the earth, to study it, to observe it, to rule over it, to operate it as God's uh, creation and to understand that we were intended to have stewardship over it. Verse 29 tells us, And God said, speaking now to man, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed 
To you it shall be for food, and also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. So notice, in the original creation, no carnivores, no carnivorous activity. Animals were not carnivorous towards one another. Mankind was existing off of the plant life and the herbs and the things that originally existed. That was God's original design. Now listen, I understand. People look at this and because of that, and again, I'm all for being a good steward with your body and, and eating well. I think that's intelligent. But people many a times you know, take this passage and then they take it to an extreme where then they say, well, listen, the problem is if we would all go back to the Eden diet, then we wouldn't have cancers and we wouldn't have these complications and digestive issues and this and that. So, or when people get sick, the first thing people want to do is, well, here's what you need to do. You need to go back on the Eden diet. If you go back on the Eden diet, it'll solve all your problems and it'll cure all your disease and so on and so forth. Well, listen, there's a couple problems with that. First of all, Everything that's fruit and vegetables now is cursed. Okay, Genesis 3 is what we look back. Everything's cursed now. So the original fruits and vegetables and all that existed in the plant life in its pure, wonderful form, in its original creation, it's all in a cursed form now. Secondarily, when you get to Genesis 9, then God says there for mankind to go ahead and partake of meat. As well as the fact that in the Passover, God tells them to eat lamb. And I'm thankful for that because I'm personally a carnivore. I like meat. <laughs> so we, we, you know, we need to be careful. Yes, that was God's original design, and I'm sure it was healthy. And I don't think that in that day when they were eating you know, plant life and fruits and vegetables and so forth, that they were you know, maybe craving and yearning as when Adam saw the first you know, lamb go by, he was thinking, oh, rack of lamb. Oh, man, I'd really love to have some. I don't think that was the case. But we need to realize in balance here, yes, this was God's original design, but this is a completely different existence than what we exist in today on the other side of the fall and the entrance of sin and the curse into humanity. And here initially we find that God had things that way. It's interesting that when you get to the kingdom age and the millennium, it seems things are going to go back that way because animals that right now are, are, are predators and prey, it says they'll be lying down together peacefully and they won't be devouring and attacking one another when Jesus sets up the kingdom. It seems things will revert in many ways back to that. Verse 31, and then God saw, it says, that everything he made, and indeed it was very good, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So we now come to the end of the sixth day of creation. Interesting verse 31. Do you notice the little insertion there, the addition? Every time as God evaluated what he made on each day of creation, the land masses and the seas, as God made the plant life and as God made the birds and the fish and the cattle and creeping things, and God saw it and it was good. God saw it and it was good. Now God creates man. And notice verse 31, it says, And God saw what he had made and it was very good. It was very good. Something added additional pleasure to God's heart. As I said last time, why? Because I think the whole time that God was creating and designing everything that he was, he was doing so with the premeditated idea, I cannot wait until I make Adam and Eve and I put them into this and I allow them to see these gorgeous birds and these amazing sea creatures and to eat some of these you know, 
possibilities for food from the vegetation and to see the beautiful scenery of my creation and, and, and God's whole purpose in the whole creative act, no doubt, ultimately was to put us into it as the crowning aspect of his creation. And because of that, now God has made man. And it says, now when he evaluates all that he has created, man is now designed. He says, now, that's very good. There was something special as that culminating event took place as God created humanity and put him into the creation to rule over and have dominion. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Interesting, first time that word shows up, finished, and it shows up attached to God and his work. When God begins work, God finishes his work. And I think the more we're made in the image and the likeness of God as the Spirit's conforming us, bringing us into the image of Jesus as Christians, I think that what we start, we should learn how to be finishers. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he said, it is finished. It wasn't easy for Jesus to finish that, but he finished it. And God is a finisher. And the Bible tells us that, that God looking upon us chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And in God's mind, he was determined to do whatever it took to finish what was necessary to accomplish the payment for our sins upon the cross with his son. And here from the very beginning, we notice the first time the word finished shows up in the Bible, it's attached to God and to his nature. And that God finishes the things that he begins and that he puts his hand to the heavens and the earth. It says, and all the host of them. Now, that term there, all the host, could indeed certainly be a reference to, as well, the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets, the solar system, which God created. Remember, earlier in the days of creation we talked about, it could be a reference to that, but many times that term host is also used to refer to the angelic host, to the spiritual realm. And it could very well indicate here, reference that as well, the heavens and the earth and all the host of them, referring to the fact of God's angelic realm being created. There is debate and question, you know, when did God create the angelic realm? Well, you know, I mean, there's, there's debate over that. Uh, certainly, I don't believe there are some who try and uh, interject that at some point, you know, you know, you know, Satan, you know, fell earlier on. I don't think that God would have seen everything in verse chapter one, verse thirty-one, as everything being very good, if Satan was already fallen and on the loose, because as a parent, he could not have been at rest, God the Father, if his son and his daughter were in jeopardy. Any parent knows that. If you're not sure of how your kids are doing or where your kids are at, you're not going to say things are very good. You're going to say something's very bad. Because my child's in jeopardy, or I don't know if they're okay, or they're at risk. And God, being a perfect father, no doubt, was certainly caring in the same way above and beyond what we would be as a parent. So, again, perhaps at this point, the angelic realm has been created amongst the, the creation account as well. But yet, at this point, Satan hasn't fallen yet. Uh, certainly prior to... Genesis chapter 3, that happens, but where we insert the fall of the devil, as Ezekiel refers to in Isaiah 14, uh, Ezekiel 28, the fall of Satan or Lucifer, we, we don't know that. But somewhere it happens because then we see him show up in Genesis 3 in the garden to bring Adam and Eve down and bring them into sin. Verse 2, it says, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it. The idea is he blessed it and he set it apart. He set it apart as a special day 
because in it, notice, he rested from all his work, which he had created, there's our word bara, and made, there's our word asa. Again, the combination of God speaking things into existence and God also like a master craftsman assembling things out of his created order of matter and elements. But here we find now on the seventh day, after six days of creation, it tells us that God rested. Now again, Isaiah tells us in other passages that that God is never weary, that God never gets tired, that he never sleeps or he never slumbers. So don't get the idea here when it says that God rested on the seventh day. The idea is that he's just so exhausted, you know, from those six days of creation. He's just so tired out. That is it. I need a day off, you know, and I'm going to institute the weekend. And that's not the idea. What it's referring to is that God ceased from his creative acts. What God rested from is he rested from his creative acts. It took him six days Purposely, not that he couldn't have done it in one, but he purposely laid out this order of six and one, which we see having meaning in the scriptures later on for Israel and then ultimately even for us as believers as spiritually we enter into a, a Sabbath rest, which is a type of the Sabbath that Israel observed. We'll see Exodus chapter 16. The Sabbath day is then instituted, the, the Sabbath day, the seventh day is instituted by God for them as something to observe, as an obligatory thing. I don't think this is an obligatory Sabbath, an enforced Sabbath that you see taking place here already. In Exodus chapter 16, God will institute that for the nation of Israel where six days they are to do the work and on the seventh day they are to rest they're to cease from their labors, and they're to allow it to be a time of refreshment and a time of reflection for God. You know, it is interesting as you look at the way in which God did those things, realizing, as we said before, that all the things laid out in the Old Testament scriptures purposely testified and foreshadowed ultimately what God would perform for us in Jesus Christ. As Christians, the Bible does not enforce or require us by command to observe Sabbath. The scriptures don't teach that. Interesting, of, of all the Ten Commandments even that are reiterated in some form or fashion in the New Testament, nine of them are reiterated one is not. The one that's not is the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was something that God legislated for the nation of Israel as a perpetual covenant with them to demonstrate that they were his people. Hebrews 4 tells us that we spiritually enter into his rest, a Sabbath rest, in that coming to Jesus Christ, he becomes our Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. See, in the same way God on the seventh day, what is he doing? He's ceasing from his creative acts. He's no longer generating any works on the seventh day. He ceased. In the same way, we enter into his rest, into a Sabbath rest when we enter into Jesus because we cease from all our works. When we come to Jesus Christ, we enter into his rest spiritually by ceasing from our religious works and saying the work that Jesus did on the cross was sufficient. I don't have to generate works to be right with God. I don't have to do things to perform and to create works that make me acceptable to God. I just enter by faith into that rest. Again, Jesus said that, that the Sabbath was made for man. Not, not, not man for the Sabbath. It got completely contorted. But here we find God establishing, as I said, this, this pattern. Sorry for the Sabbath rabbit trail. Let's get back to where we're at in creation here a minute. <laughs> but he, here we find God establishing this pattern. Now, it is interesting that God, it tells us, six days of work, 
he rests on the seventh, ceases from his creative acts. He's still maintaining everything. In him all things consist. So God's still working. He's just ceased from his creative works. But the pattern, nonetheless, as it's instituted for man later on to work six days hard and have one day of complete rest and shutdown, it is an extremely wise pattern. Scientists have discovered that the healthiest way for our immune system to function is that typically the immune system usually takes a break one day in seven. That every seven days the immune system kind of slows down and sort of takes a break one out of every seven days. How interesting. Of course, not a coincidence. You know, the, the, the scientists have told us as well, interesting, that our bodies replicate Every seven years, we have a complete turnover of all of our cells. You ever heard people say before, you know, man, I didn't think I'd have had allergies before. And then all of a sudden, you start picking up allergies. Because every seven years, our bodies literally change. There's this pattern by design in the way that God created us. And here we see God now resting and blessing the seventh day. And think about it. This is the first day, first full day of man's creation. Man's created on the sixth day. This is the first full day of man's creation on this earth, the first full day of man's creation. And what does God do? God ceases from everything else. Why? Why do you think? So he can spend time with man. He ceases from everything else because he says, you know what? Hey, this is the first day of man's creation. And Genesis 2 tells us later on, Adam and God really walked together in the cool of the day. It tells us as we get further, Genesis chapter 3, excuse me, that they walked together. And God said, hey, this is man's first day. I want to spend time with him. Man's first day of existence on this earth included, guess what? One thing, spending time with God. Because that's what we were created for. You ever wonder sometimes why you're all weary and worn out? A lot of times it's not a physical thing. A lot of times it's just the neglect of spending time with God. Isn't it interesting? Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And he says, "And learn of me. Take my yoke upon you and you will find rest. And then he says, rest for your soul. The inward part. He's not talking about physical rest. He's talking about an internal rest. And a lot of times we are so weary and so worn. The Bible says those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And here God shows so important was fellowship with man. He takes a complete break one day out of the week. He takes a complete break on the first day of man's existence. And boy, it makes total sense to me to understand, hey, there's the answer. That's what I was created for. The way to live life, though it is a rat race, and I know, the way to live life, yeah, work hard six days a week. I I think it's good to be productive. God's going to give Adam something to do in the next few verses and make man productive. But the most important rest is an internal rest whereby we say, you know what, the first purpose and reason I'm on this planet before I do anything else or accomplish anything else is to spend time with God. That's what man did in his first day. He just spent time with God. So to me, that's what should be the first priority in every part of my day. I'm here to spend time with God. Now, that doesn't mean I don't do other things, but I begin my day spending time with God, and then the Bible says pray without ceasing. I walk through the whole day spending time with God. God's with me as I'm doing my work. God's with you as you're washing your dishes or doing the laundry or working on your school. God's in everything that you're doing. You're you're spending time with God. But recognizing that that is the chief aim and the number one purpose that we're here. So here God blesses that seventh day, sets it apart. 
rested from his work in which he created. And verse 4 then tells us this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, or the earth and the heavens. Now, what's going to happen in chapter four, chapter 2, verse 4, running through the remainder of the chapter, it's almost, as I said earlier, alluding to this, first God gives the broad picture, and he shows us the seven days of creation, and he describes them in sort of a general panoramic view, and now, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, God goes back and he retells the story, he reiterates it, and he inserts some more fine details. So he gives the broad brush picture, and now he comes back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and he gives us some additional insights and details, focusing specifically, again, not on the stars or the sun or the moon or the plants or the animals. God specifically zeroes in on the crowning part of his creation, which is mankind. And we get some more details. We sort of go from the telescopic view to sort of a microscopic view as God gives us some more details of his creation of mankind. And notice verse 4, there's the first time we see in the Bible here that term Lord God. Lord God. The Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And that word Lord, it should be capital L-O-R-D in your Bible. Sometimes you read capital L, small O-R-D, that's Adonai. This is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's that Hebrew tetragrammaton, the Y-H-V-H, where they would get the name Yehovah or Yahweh. And here you have Yehovah God or Yahweh God, Yahweh Elohim, is the one who was the creator so that the Jews would know, hey, that's our creator, our God. Our God, Yahweh God, was our creator And it says, this is the history now of these things. Before any plant, verse 5, of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had noticed, not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. So we're rewinding now, we're going back. But it says, a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the earth. So we have more description and allusion here to what we talked about last time, where it seems that there was this water vapor or this water canopy that existed around the original earth and its creation. Because at this point, really, we we read directly, it says the Lord had not caused it to rain on the earth. We don't see rain brought into existence by God until the time of Noah's flood, where it rained 40 days and 40 nights. And that's a pretty tremendous rain. And no doubt, that was probably when God released this water canopy we talked about last week that many believe existed around the earth that would would contribute to a constant tropical climate that would block certain UV rays that would come forth, that would cause cell breakdown and mutations, that would cause man's life to not be able to last as long. It was these original conditions that contributed to the longevity of life. That, that allowed things to be like a, like a terrarium-type experience. Notice it says that the Lord hadn't caused the rain, but yet there was a mist. You ever see the mist that maybe you're in a supermarket, you know, and that, that every once in a while you pss, and that mist comes out, tries to keep the fruit and vegetables fresh. There was this mist, some kind of subterranean water that was under the earth that came up and it somehow watered the earth that kept everything healthy and sort of a tropical-type environment in the original creation. And man was not there, it says, interesting, was not there to take care of, it says, to till the ground. Interesting, God creates heaven and earth, he creates 
the plants and so forth, but God says, but yet I need someone to come into existence to care for these things, to have stewardship over them, which brings us then to verse 7, and the Lord God, there's our word again, Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being or it literally could be translated a living soul at this point. So God says, let us make man in our image and our likeness. Now we get some more detail about what God did. It says that God formed and that term formed there of the dust of the ground is a Hebrew word that could be used for a potter shaping pottery. And it's interesting. The Lord, like a potter, formed, he shaped or he molded man's body, it says, out of the dust of the ground. And it is scientifically verifiable that the same elements that exist in common dirt are the same basic elements that exist in the makeup of our human bodies. If you basically took all the water out of your body and reduced it down to its basic elements, you're worth about the price of a Happy Meal. <laughs> That's about what our bodies... Now, it gives whole new meaning if somebody calls you a dirt bag or, you know... It's, it is what it is. But talk about some pretty amazing capacity that God would use the same elements that exist in Commodore and he would form and fashion the bodies that we have. I just watched again recently the uh, DVD, the, the Case for Intelligent Design, and it describes the, the complexity of the system, the integrated system that we are. If any of you have you know, had science class, biology, anatomy, physiology, I like that kind of stuff. And you're aware of the, the complexities of our human body and the tremendous design in our bodies, in the circulatory system, and the nervous system, our eyes with the, you know, the, the, the cones and the rods and the way they're, they're made up and, and how they function. I mean, our body is a marvel. And yet people want to try and foolishly, oh, well, that just all happened by chance. It all happened by accident. There is something marvelous about the design of the human body, unlike anything else, you know, where we are intelligently assembled. We are a complex, integrated systems, the way God's made us, ourselves. Even the, the most basic form of life, the cell that we know. It, there used to be the term, the simple cell. That, that doesn't even come into play anymore because that's not simple. It is such a complex system. The bacterial flagellum, which is what drives some of the cells, when, when you break it down and look at it, it's like a little functioning motor. And this is just the cell, the, the, the simplest form of the makeup of everything in life. And if all of those parts were not there from the start, that cell could not function and it could not move and go to the places that it did to accomplish the things. It's just like a... A automobile engine, you know, with a drive shaft and all those things that exist. And I don't know anything about vehicles, but I do know this. If you take one or two parts out of an engine, the engine don't work. Do you understand what I'm saying? All the parts have to be there, assembled and functional for the engine to operate. And yet evolution and other concepts of how life came to existence that want to ignore creation say, oh, well, just gradual changes took place over time and this was added and this was added and even the ideas of natural selection, you know, only favorable parts were kept and other ones were disposed of. Listen, if everything wasn't there from the beginning, it couldn't function. It had to all be there. You know, it's it, 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 you know, I can't even talk straight. <laughs> 
God has designed our bodies in such an evident way to make it clear that there's a designer. You know, it's amazing how we can look at something like a building and we look at a building and, and we say, well, how did that building get there? Somebody designed it. Somebody built it. And we don't dispute that. Just common sense tells us that. And yet we want to look at a human body so much more complex with the DNA and the you know, proteins and the amino acids and all these things and the codes that exist in DNA and, and, and the, this, this intricate language that's there to cause the body to, to know these cells go off. And it all starts from one cell. And yet then the information is there that, okay, well, these go off and these become bone cells. And these go off and these become you know, liver tissue cells. And this goes and becomes skin cells. And all that information is encoded in there with the assembly instructions and all the details and everything that's there indicating so clearly that it's by design, that God created it. And, and just marvelous to consider here, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. You know, this is what they call irreducible complexity. Again, something so complex, you can't reduce it because it's too complex. It wouldn't function. And God formed that out of the dust of the ground? Talk about a master potter. Talk about somebody that you can rely on when he's forming and he's shaping your life. And you're thinking, oh, Lord, I don't like the pressure you're putting on there. <laughs> Listen, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He's a master potter. It says he formed man of the dust of the ground and then notice he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Again, God creates and he designs all these things. He puts together these bodies, complex as they are, but yet here we are, the first, here's, here's Adam, God creates him and then it says that God condescends, he stoops down and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and then man is awakened and becomes a living being. It's almost as if, again, Jesus said, remember, the flesh profits nothing. The spirit gives life. And here's God now breathing life into man. And here's all the, all the system, right? It's, it's like a microwave. All the parts can be there. But until you plug it into the power source, the thing doesn't turn on. And at some point, God creates man, intricate as we are, and then he breathes in those nostrils the breath of life. Man becomes a living being. And then all of a sudden, it's like the whole system turns on. And now all of a sudden, the brain's functioning. Now all of a sudden, the heart's beginning to contract and blood's going through the circulatory system and the lungs are functioning. All these involuntary things that we have no control over. How many times did you think about keeping your heart beating since you've been sitting here? Right? God turns all that on. And he causes it all to begin to function and to begin to operate. And no doubt when man breathed, or God breathed into man, he became a living being. At that time, his soul, his consciousness, God creates man, again, unique from all the rest of the creatures that exist in that we have the ability, being created in the image and likeness of God, to have a God consciousness. And man's spirit comes alive, thereby he might have fellowship with his creator, with God. All of a sudden now man... Uh, finding himself in this place where he's conscious not only of God, but man who's self-conscious. We're self-conscious beings. If you think of the way God's created us so distinct from everything else, I mean, unique capacities. We have the ability, unlike any of the animal kingdom, to have logical thoughts, to be able to reason through things. Man has the ability to learn language. 
something we call the P factor, which interestingly enough, the P factor is something that exists in our original creation when we're, when we're born. And then by the time we get to around 15, 16 years old, the P factor, which is what enables us to learn languages, it begins to drop off very rapidly. Now, isn't it interesting? We start teaching kids around 15, 16 years old Spanish, and we wonder why we're all frustrated in high school, you know, it, it, because it's the strongest when it's, but all these things, God's created us with the capacity to do mathematical equations. God's created us with the capacity to learn language and to have emotional abilities, to discern truth and error, to grasp concepts, and to do all the things that we do. The marvel of his creation, to appreciate things unlike any other part of his creation. So man now coming into existence. In verse 8, And the Lord God, it says, planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man... Whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow, notice, that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So God creates this paradise garden, east in Eden. I'm not sure exactly where Eden would have been located geographically. There's dispute all over that, which I don't think any of it ultimately becomes credible at the end of the day. But God creates this garden. Now, again, God's a master craftsman an incredible incredible creationist can you imagine what that garden must have been like god some of you like gardening god creates a garden and he puts adam into that garden and it tells us that everything was there pleasant to the sight so god purposely made it beautiful because he knew that adam and eve could appreciate that again god made it something that they could admire it and appreciate it god wanted to give that satisfaction oh wow that's beautiful all right you can appreciate that God made a beautiful environment purposely, and he made everything good for food. So again, though they weren't eating prime rib and filet mignon, everything they ate, trust me, you know, the, the grapes, probably even the broccoli and cauliflower, probably tasted good. It was all good for food. It was something that was satisfying to man's visual stimuli, as well as to his taste buds, what he partook of fruit. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, these two trees that were there. And we'll talk more about them as we get into the further verses. Now a river, it says, went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon, and it is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, just in case you were wondering, Bedelium and onyx stone were also there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. And it's the one which goes around the whole land of Cush, which would have been Ethiopia in that day as they knew it. And the name of the third river is the Hidekel, or your translation may say Tigris as well. And it is the one that goes toward east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So God creates this paradise garden this eden that he puts man into it tells us that it was beautiful to the sight there was incredible food to partake of and then again god knows the things that we enjoy he's got this beautiful river that splits off into four tributaries running through there now let me just say this without belaboring the subject to this day there are people who are still trying to find the exact location of eden they try and use this information and calculate okay well where is it and well, there's a reference there to the Euphrates and to the Tigris and to Assyria and to Cush and, and so forth. Listen, we need to remember, First Peter tells us, 
that the world that now exists is not the same as the world that once was as the result of all the cataclysmic judgments and changes that came as the result of the floodwaters that came upon this earth. So I don't think geographically the same things and reference points location-wise that are mentioned here are the same as what we know of some of these same modern-day things. Here's my point. I think what took place is this was something that was a part of the paradise of God, of man's original existence, that man cherished and he communicated down through the generations to where later on when these other geographic locations came into existence, there were such fond memories of the garden. They said, hey, why don't we name this the Euphrates? Why don't we? And, and here's what I mean by that. I just came from York, Pennsylvania. Well, guess what? There's also a York, England. Do you know what York, Pennsylvania is named after? York, England. And see, we, we do that. We, we come to a new area and we say, hey, let's name this according to the fond memory we have of something else. And I say that to say this. People to this day, researchers trying to find where was Eden exactly. You know what? We're going to get back to Eden. Don't worry. <laughs> Wait till Genesis 21 and 22. We're gonna, God's going to give it back to us anyway. And if we found out where it was, people would set up an altar and a shrine there, and, and people would go, and there'd be the first church of Eden. You know, it'd be the first thing that would happen. And, and everybody would set up a shrine there. It was somewhere that existed, no doubt, geographically. It's been changed tremendously, but we have a description of the conditions there. Verse 15, a few more verses. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Notice to tend it and to keep it. So take note, God creates this paradise garden and then what does God do? He takes man, he puts him in the garden. He says, Adam, take a nap, relax, do nothing. What does he do? No, it says that God gave man a responsibility to tend and to keep the garden. God gave him something to be productive. God gave him work. That's the word. God gave him something constructive to do. Again, prior to Genesis chapter 3, sin hasn't entered the picture. Now, I understand today, a lot of times we look at work and, and work's not what it originally was. Now, because of the sweat of our brow, work is difficult. But, oh, I hate work, man. It's, so, it's, all, it's all because of the curse. No, work's hard because of the curse. But work is God's ordained intention for human beings. In the original creation, God gave Adam, in a perfect existence, something to do. Adam had a job. His job was to tend the garden and to keep it. And it's God's design and intention that we have something constructive to do. It's what we were created for. We weren't intended to be idle. We weren't intended to sit around and play Nintendo all day long. God created us by design to be constructive. Why? To find fulfillment. To have a sense of purpose. To have a sense of being productive and achieving things. Granted, I understand the curse now as a result, we, by the sweat of our brow we work to do things. It's more difficult. We don't produce as vibrantly as we would prior to the curse. But it was God's plan in his original design. Isn't that what we want to know? God, what was your original design? What was your original plan? To have fellowship with you, relationship with you, that you wanted me to enjoy my creation and that, God, you wanted me to have something constructive to do, something productive. Now, that work may unfold itself in many different ways all of our lives, whether it's going out and working in a warehouse in Walmart or sitting in a, 
you know, a cubicle working a computer or, you know, delivering newspapers or whether it's in domestic ways, working and caring for a household and doing laundry and dishes and tending to children. But the point is, is God's intention is that we had something constructive, that we were productive and that was God's design for us, that we might have purpose and fulfillment. And here, God takes man, he puts him in the garden to tend it, to keep it. Again, Adam... Take care of it. This is your responsibility. I want you to be productive. Be doing this constructive thing on a regular basis. Verse 16, And the Lord God then commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Take notice, God gives man one prohibition. Adam, you can enjoy everything. He was in the paradise of God. The guy was lacking nothing. Nothing. And God gives him now one prohibition. He says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, every other tree you can freely eat, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he says, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, of course, what do we find Adam and Eve doing right away? (laughs) Hanging around that one thing that God said don't go mess with. Typical human propensity in all of us. Wet paint. Oh, I wonder if it's still wet. You know, we, we understand that. Here's the thing, and we'll talk more about this when we, we get to Genesis 3 because it applies back to this prohibition that God gave. We look at it and think, wait a minute, why would God do that? I mean, here everything's perfect, man. Perfect fellowship with God, perfect environment, everything is fantastic. Why would God, here's the way the logical mind thinks, why would God go and throw a curveball in there and put something there and say, don't touch that. <laughs> I mean, he's God. It's like he, he was unaware of the propensity that why would God do that? It almost seems like we think, well, that, well here, listen, you need to understand something. Love is based on choice. Love's based on choice. And relationship is based on willing decision to be with another party. And, and true, God didn't want man to be a robot. God didn't create man to just be a puppet and do whatever. God created man for meaningful fellowship. And a choice was necessary for man to demonstrate that he wanted meaningful fellowship with God. Let me illustrate this way. Okay? The fact that my wife made a decision to choose to marry me and spend the rest of her life with me when she had the option of all the other males on this planet is really meaningful to me. To this day, I'm still bamboozled by the whole thing, but it means something to me because it indicates tremendous love. It indicates she chose me. She had options, and lots of them, trust me, (laughs) she had options, but she chose me over all those other options. See, God needed to create an option because God wanted meaningful love relationship with us. So God had to create an option, and even an option that was somewhat tempting, in order for man to demonstrate to choose, God, I love you. I choose you. I choose you over evil. I choose you over what's wrong. I want to be right with you and right relationship with you. Now, ultimately, we know that that, that Adam and Eve fail, and and they, they, they forfeit a lot of what's there by making a poor choice. But again, please understand, God's a good God. 
And all God was doing was creating a necessary environment whereby he might have meaningful relationship and fellowship with us. And the day you eat of it, God said, you shall surely die. And we know what happens when they partake of it. Adam doesn't drop dead on the spot, does he? He continues to live on. Physical death did enter into humanity at that point, but Adam doesn't die right on the spot. But what does happen is spiritual death happens because Adam goes from walking with God in the cool of the day in complete fellowship to starting to hide from God. And he senses, again, in his God-consciousness and self-consciousness, the light has gone out spiritually. He realizes he's sinful and he's not right with God now. And spiritual death entered the picture. But the wonderful thing is, is that Jesus Christ, the second Adam, came into our creation as God and man and reconciled the whole problem. That's what Romans 5 is all about. And you read Romans chapter 5, and it's a great chapter to read because it shows how everything that Adam messed up in the big Adam bomb, which we'll see in chapter 3, okay? Jesus came and he put all the building blocks back together and he fixed everything and he resolved everything so that we can be born again and be back into right fellowship and relationship with God.